Welcome to the Humanizing Work Show. Today we're talking about cross-functional teams, what that means, why it matters, and how to deal with a number of real-world challenges related to team composition. But before we get into that, this show is a free resource sponsored by the Humanizing Work Company. Humanizing work exists to make work more fit for humans and humans more capable of doing great work. To that end, we do training and coaching in three areas. First, we help leaders lead empowered teams and individuals more effectively. Second, we help product people turn their ideas into good experiments, visions, and backlogs. Third, we help teams collaborate better to produce meaningful outcomes on complex work. If you or your organization would benefit from better leadership, better product management, or better collaboration, and if you find our vision for human-centric work compelling, we have capacity to take on a few new clients in 2024. Visit the contact page on humanizingwork.com and schedule a conversation with us. Now, on to today's topic, cross-functional teams. All right, let's start by defining the term. A cross-functional team in the scrum sense, which is how we use it, means a team that has all the skills needed to deliver an increment of value to a customer or a user. So, for example, on a cross-functional software team, there will be team members who collectively have all the skills to work in any layer of the system. They don't have to go ask another team to make, say, a database change for them. To put it in a non-software context, uh, think of a restaurant kitchen. A cross-functional team there means having every skill in the kitchen to be able to actually produce a complete meal for a customer. Why does this matter? Well, methods like Scrum, or really any way of organizing work that involves increments of value as the primary work item type, methods like that are built on the assumption that you have a cross-functional team. Everything in Scrum assumes cross-functional teams. Now, does this mean that's the only way to work? Of course not. But what it does mean is that if you don't have a cross-functional team, you can expect other things in Scrum to break, or at least to not work as intended. You won't get the full benefit of short sprints with planning at the start and review at the end. If planning sounds like, we'll work on these items and we might get some of them done, but it depends on what other teams do. And then the review sounds like, here's a bunch of stuff we worked on, but we're still waiting for dependencies to get done to be able to demo anything. In that situation, you just have project management check-ins on a regular cadence. You're not benefiting from a short cycle time and real feedback on real completed product increments. This, by the way, is one of the big reasons people don't experience their company's, quote, agile transformation as actually making their work better. It's just new words and more meetings. The cross-functional team really is a foundational practice for any agile method to work. Now, you may be thinking, that's great, guys, but you don't know my situation. I can't just make that kind of cross-functional team happen. So let's talk about some real-world challenges, some variations, and some trade-offs. There are some consultants who go so far as to refuse to work with an organization that's unwilling to restructure into cross-functional teams. We much prefer to meet the organization where it is and acknowledge that there are trade-offs in any big change. And for most organizations, restructuring into cross-functional teams is a big change. Most organizations aren't starting there. So we want to talk through how we deal with the real challenges and trade-offs we've seen with our clients. All right, let's start with this challenge. If I make my team fully cross-functional, it's going to be too big. Scrum suggests a team size of five to nine people, but also says the team should be cross-functional. And those might not be possible to get at the same time. I remember working with one client who was adopting an agile approach after a couple decades of working on a large mainframe-based system using a traditional project management approach. 
because of the approach to their work and the size of the system, developers had become very specialized. They could each only work on a small part of the system. When we figured out what skills would be required to make a cross-functional team, and then did a self-organizing team formation exercise with all the potential team members, we landed at about 20 people on a team. This obviously is way bigger than the max size for a scrum team, according to the scrum guide. So we were faced with a dilemma. Do we let the team be too big or do we let the team be less than fully cross-functional? In that case, the client decided that for the change that they wanted to make in their work, it was better to have a too large team. Yeah, it would make communication less efficient, but it kept complexity inside the team and it let them practice collaborating on complete increments of value in a way they never had before. Now, they didn't want to stick with the too large team forever, so they built cross-training into their work with a goal of being able to split into two cross-functional teams that could work on that same backlog in a year. What I like about this approach is that it had a strategy for a decent short-term setup and an ideal long-term setup. If they'd done the reverse, if they'd set up two small non-cross-functional teams, each doing a part of an increment of value, basically two component teams, they would have had to do lots of coordination across those two teams to get anything done. They never would have gotten to practice working in a real agile way, collaborating on complete increments of value. And they really wouldn't have had a context for cross-training to get small cross-functional teams in the future. Those small component teams would actually have been a strategic dead end. So if you're thinking, I'd love to have a cross-functional team that could deliver a complete increment of value, but it would just be too big to be a scrum team. Our advice is let it be too big. Better to have a bigger team for a while than to split the complexity and value across two teams, then cross-train so you can split into two smaller cross-functional teams down the road. Another challenge that came up for me sounded like this. Uh, different parts of an increment of value have really different kinds of work, and they don't really require collaboration. This one specifically uh, was made really clear to me when I was working with a pretty well-known company that sold hardware products that had embedded software as part of that product. And their research and development team, their R&D team, wanted to adopt Scrum. But the hardware and software parts of the project had very different skill sets. Uh, there were mechanical and electrical engineers on the hardware side, and then software developers and physics PhDs on the software side. They really didn't need to do a lot of collaboration and the conventional wisdom of having them form a tightly integrated cross-functional team didn't seem like a logical fit. While an increment of value may require changes to both the hardware and software parts of a, of a team like that, the work involved in each is so different. Different specialists, different kinds of tasks, even a different natural cadence for feedback loops, that it, it may make sense, and it did in this case, to have two different teams that coordinate closely together. One for hardware and one for software each of which is cross-functional within its own domain. So that's how we set it up, and then we just made sure to meet regularly for alignment and visibility. We wanted to make sure that the two teams were working towards the same goals and features, and then were aware of each other's timelines. And then they focused on integrating as often as possible, which was much more frequently than they had done prior to this adoption. That part took a few sprints to get right, the integration piece and how to make things visible, but it quickly became a really effective way for them to work. Next challenge. What if you only have one person with a certain specialty and that specialty is needed on more than one team? Some flavor of this one is pretty common. 
because if you haven't staffed for cross-functional teams from the beginning, you almost always have one or more skills that would be understaffed when you go to cross-functional teams. Uh, let's look at an example. One client I worked with had this challenge with a database expert who was a crucial resource for multiple teams. Each team's work often required complex database modifications and optimizations. So they started by trying to make the database expert sort of a consultant for both teams, but he quickly became a bottleneck. To address this, we turn to the theory of constraints, five focusing steps. The first step, identify the constraint, was clear. It was that one database expert. The next steps, exploit and subordinate, involved maximizing the expert's time and aligning the team's work to his availability. So on the backlog and in sprint planning, teams would plan out what needed database expertise and when. And sometimes they had to pull less work into their sprint to account for the limited capacity of the bottleneck skill. Next step, elevate, was crucial. It involved addressing the constraint head on by increasing the database development capacity. And they did this in two ways. First, in the short term, by training other team members in database tasks so they could reduce that dependency on the expert for less complex issues. And then second, they initiated the process of hiring or contracting another database expert. This was a longer term solution, but it was crucial for this to be sustainable and for them to scale over the long term. What I liked about this approach was that it acknowledged the reality of the constraint. We only have this one person and every team needs them, but then dealt with it pragmatically instead of a rigid adherence to the ideal team structure. Well, we can only make one team. It allowed for a flexible approach, adapting the team's workflows and capabilities to the reality of the available resources they had. And it also emphasized the importance of long-term solutions, not just staying there. So they did the training and the hiring, ensuring that the teams would be closer to fully cross-functional in the future. By the way, if you want to learn more about the theory of constraints, which I've referenced here but didn't really explain, check out our online mini course on the topic. We'll link to it in the show notes. All right, on to our next challenge, which sounds like this. We only need the skill occasionally, but we really need it when we need it. I recall working with a software team facing this issue, and they were kind of a well-oiled machine on their usual development tasks. But every once in a while, they would hit a roadblock that required significant changes to their development in infrastructure. And that was something that was outside of their domain and squarely in the realm of their IT team that supported them. These weren't frequent occurrences, but when they happened, the need was urgent and pretty critical to the project's continuation. In a sense, they needed the IT skill on their team to actually be cross-functional, but the need wasn't routine enough to feel worth it. That person would be idle most of the time, and across the org, there was plenty of IT demand. So for a regular demand like this, having a separate function team that acts as a service to multiple cross-functional teams is usually the right trade-off. The trouble here, as is often the case, uh, was that the IT team had its own priorities and schedules, which didn't always align with the needs of the software teams that I was coaching. This mismatch often resulted in the software team waiting for the IT team's availability, leading to stalled progress and mounting pressure. And of course, the conflict between the IT team and the other teams they worked with didn't make anyone's lives any better. So we worked with that IT team to establish a Kanban system with demand prioritization and classes of service for work of different levels of urgency. And then the software team started looking ahead on their backlogs to identify items that would require IT help. They got those in the IT work queue early. 
Over time, the IT team was able to predict the lead time on different classes of service. So software teams knew how early they needed to get something in the queue. And an expedite class still made room for the emergent items that weren't able to get plans far in advance. So if you have a skill you only need occasionally, especially if other teams need the same skill occasionally, it can make sense to aggregate that skill into a shared service team. But if you do this, you need to make sure that the shared service team has enough capacity to be responsive and predictable so that skill is available when the other teams need it. Um, I, I should mention a warning here. I had one client that had a, a brief and ill-conceived experiment with this where they made every specialty a service team to every other specialty. <laughs> and people spent their entire day in meetings trying to coordinate everything across all these teams. So you really only use this one for the exceptions, the skills that you need occasionally, not core skills for the value you're trying to deliver. <laughs> that sounds like a nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> it was ridiculous. Yeah, don't do that. Uh, save this for the exception. All right, let's do another one. We can make cross-functional teams of T-shaped people like the whole Agile community talks about, but sometimes we really just need the specialists working together. For example, uh, maybe you have the database people spread across three teams, but you'd really like them to be able to collaborate amongst themselves on the data modeling for some tricky new concept, and that can't happen in any one of these cross-functional Scrum teams. I've seen this before. The move here is to optimize for the standard case and work around the exceptions. Build the cross-functional team. Then when you really need a working group of specialists across teams, block some capacity in their respective teams so they can work together on a concrete problem for a limited duration. It works best if you scope this work to just what the specialist team can uniquely do, and then you have them provide some artifact back to their cross-functional teams to develop further. In my experience, it actually turns out to be pretty rare that the specialists need to do dedicated work together. It's more common that they need to lightly coordinate work in their specialty. And for that, a community of practice is a better model than a team. This, by the way, is the exact model that many of the cross-product features that made up Adobe creative things were built, exactly the way that Richard just described it. All right, let's talk about one of the hardest challenges in this space, which is, Maybe we have the people to make cross-functional teams, but I don't have the power to make it happen. Maybe you're a team member on an individual team and it's not cross-functional. You can see how it could be, uh, but what do you do? And this one really isn't about the idea of cross-functional teams so much as it is about influence. I remember working with a product leader who we'll refer to here as Victoria, that was facing this exact situation Victoria was prioritizing the work of four teams that contributed to a web system. And the four teams were structured around a specialty. One team that did things in an ERP system. One that made changes to back-end servers and databases. One that did front-end UI development for that website. And one that focused on testing everything as it came together. Each of those four teams were using a sprint structure to do their work incrementally, but none of them could deliver an increment of value on their own, as we described at the beginning of this episode. So a given change either had to be tightly coordinated during a sprint, or that change would span multiple sprints, waiting for the work to pass from team to team to team. As you might expect, about half the time, the testing team, which was the last one in the chain, would discover some issue and that would kick it back to one of the earlier teams, breaking their ability to be predictable in any, in any uh, meaningful way. Now, Victoria really wanted to form one or two cross-functional teams across those specialties, 
But the people on those teams didn't report to her. Victoria reported to a vice president of product. The team members on all those teams reported up to four of her peers who reported up to a vice president on the technical side of the organization. And so she didn't have direct influence where she could just say, I think we should do this and make it happen. So she decided to use one of our favorite influence techniques, which is this. If you can't fix it, make it visible. And to put an even finer point on it, if you can't fix it, make it obvious why it's a good idea to the person that can fix it. So Victoria got to work analyzing all of the requests that had gone through her teams over the last quarter or two and discovered that the average cycle time for a request was two months. In other words, from the time that somebody had an idea and made that request to the time it was live, two months on average. And then half of those requests required some type of rework. Then she also did some what-if scenarios where she got experts from each of those four different teams and then said, hey, if we were to build a cross-functional team, how many of these would we get done in a given two-week sprint? And she felt pretty comfortable forecasting that if they did form that cross-functional team, they would, with a high degree of certainty or a high degree of probability, complete at least one or two changes uh, per two-week sprint. And if they were doing the testing as part of the team, they'd rarely end up having to do rework. So here's what Victoria did. She got those two vice presidents together in a room and she showed them a three-slide deck. Slide one, she summarized the current statistics. On average, we can make one change every two months. On slide two, she created a very complicated but accurate process diagram for the path that a request took from idea to live in production, just to show how messy it was. And then on slide three, she shared a really simple diagram of a cross-functional team making those decisions and a prediction that the time would go down from two months to one week for any given request and rework would go down from about 50% to less than 10%. She made the pitch and the vice presidents immediately said, why haven't we done this already? <laughs> so Victoria avoided a common mistake we see people make, which is to make the general case for a change like this. Like, oh, well, Scrum says we should have cross-functional teams, and that's their reasoning for doing it. Or research shows that cross-functional teams are more effective. For those vice presidents, neither of those general cases are compelling enough to be willing to bite off the pain of a reorg. I skipped this when I was telling the story, but Victoria had tried that shortly after the org had some scrum training, and no one bit on it. It was only after she made the specific business case in their context with their real data, showing the business benefits of a cross-functional team that the VP said, oh, of course we should do that. So if you don't own the decision, then make the benefits and trade-offs visible to whomever does. In this episode, we've explored what cross-functional teams are, why they're crucial to agile methods like Scrum, and how to navigate some common challenges in creating and maintaining these teams. Remember, the goal of cross-functional teams is to enhance collaboration, efficiency, and the ability to deliver complete increments of value. While it's not always easy or straightforward to create the ideal team composition, Understanding the principles and then being flexible in your approach can lead to significant improvements in how your teams operate and deliver value. Thanks for tuning in to this week's Humanizing Work Show. We hope today's discussion helps you think differently about team composition for your organization and what's possible even in challenging situations. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us for more discussions on making work more fit for humans and humans more capable of doing great work. See you next time. Mm -hmm.